it's not all fun and games all the time. I wish it was. It sounds like it should be, but it's, it is a lot of hard work and it's just hard work you get to enjoy. That's the voice of Joey Isaacson, owner of Lounge Logic, and I'm excited to talk with him right after a quick word from our sponsor. Hey everyone, what do you know about Shaper tools? Specifically, the Shaper Origin. As a listener to this show, you can try a Shaper Origin risk-free for 30 days in your own shop. That's right, in your own shop. Just by visiting shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand to learn more. The handheld CNC router that has brought digital precision and efficiency of workflow to so many people is yours to try risk-free. Use it to tackle your joinery, your cabinetry, your hardware installations, and more with speed, precision, and the reliability your business needs. If you want to learn more or to give it a risk-free 30-day try, just visit shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand or check the link in the show notes. And now on with the episode. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Joey Isaacson, owner of the Santa Ana, California-based furniture company, Lounge Logic. Joey likes to tell a story of a time a client asked for a quote on some custom pieces. When he gave the quote, they said, really? That much for just some plywood and paint? He responded with, if all you wanted was plywood and paint, I could provide the project for much less. But if you wanted me to draw it, design it, spec it, create a cut list, buy the materials, transport the materials, cut, assemble, and finish the materials, the quote would include all of that. This idea of knowing his worth and the worth of his company is what has kept his four-person shop in business since 2016. Follow along as we talk about bad bosses, small space solutions, not giving out your cell phone number, and much more. So let's get right into it and hear Joey's story in his own words. Well, I've always been the type that would want to try new things that interest me. And living in Southern California my whole life has allowed that kind of mentality. The trouble with it is I would be super into one thing, then something new would come along and grab my attention. So I had difficulty sticking to things long enough to master them. So, you know, as a kid, I played just about every sport out there. Then when I got my driver's license, I was really into modifying cars. And then the next thing was music. I played bass guitar, you know, several metalcore and hardcore bands and just always had my hands in different things at the same time. And the funniest thing is woodworking was never one of them. I certainly had the chance because my dad had a shop in our garage and built stuff for the house. My grandfather had a wood shop in his garage until the day he passed. And I even had a great uncle with a wood hobby shop in his garage. But to me, as a young, dumb teenager, I just think I had that mindset that woodworking was just for the old guys. You know, my early 20s, I was working a dead end job, very boring, but paid enough for me to keep pursuing all those interests. I never really saw myself going to college, but I knew I needed to get into something that could be a career and not just a job. And I found myself getting really into architecture. I discovered the Art Institute of California, which was close to home and had an interior design program where I could earn a bachelor's degree. And since I wasn't great at math, I figured that was the way to get close enough to the architecture industry. So somehow I managed to put myself through college and stick with it long enough to graduate. I learned CAD, 3DS Max, building codes, human scale, studied furniture, and 
you know, the Eames and Mies van der Rohe and all the greats. And, you know, I always felt real smart when I got to casually throw in terms like proxemics and anthropometrics into conversations with my friends. <laughs> you know, that's, that's impressive. <laughs> so I graduated in 2011 thinking I'd work for an architecture or design firm, but it was right in the wake of the big recession and construction just wasn't happening. So there I was with a ton of school debt and trained for an industry that just wasn't hiring. I got a call from a guy that had gone to my school and he asked me to interview at this large event production company he had started working at. I did my interview, took the job and quickly fell in love with it and the people I was working with. I mean, here we were responsible for these large corporations and charity events, but everyone was just so personable and casual and I formed a really tight bond with them. My initial role there was mainly just preparing event layouts and site plans and CAD and doing a little graphic design work. Ended up getting promoted to be in charge of the fabrication department because they needed someone who could draw and spec material. And I was making things a little more streamlined and profitable. The greatest thing about that position was the things that I was drawing, I was actually going to see it soon. I'm not just working on something for months that may never come to fruition, which for me was a downside of going into architecture. This is a fast paced industry and I never felt like I was doing the same thing twice. So I just loved it. Designing so many things there, I found there was a need for better portable bars. So I developed a design, pitched it to the owner, and he wasn't really interested in investing in it. So I took it upon myself to make some prototypes in my garage. I didn't own very many tools, but my dad brought over some of his and helped me build stuff. Thought maybe it could be a side business. And that's actually where the name Lounge Logic came from. Then in 2015, the owner of the event production company decided to retire. And a new owner came in and just drove a 40-something-year-old company into the ground within a year. I saw it coming. I just didn't want to accept that reality. But then April of 2016, as the walls were crumbling, the day finally came where I got laid off. And I was married at that point. So I had to go home to my you know, wife and six months old and say, yeah, this is the reality. And being a husband and a new father with a mortgage, I thought... That was kind of it for doing something I really love doing. I can't be switching from thing to thing just because it interested me. I needed to be more responsible for my family and just go find a job, even if it ended up being boring. But to my surprise, within those first couple of weeks, word had spread that I was gone from that company. And I started getting text messages and phone calls from former coworkers that had moved on to other companies in the industry and even clients that had become really tight with. And they're like, I still need to get stuff made and I want to work with you. Can you do this on your own? And I was just like, I think so. I took on a couple of projects and built them in my garage, which drove my neighbors crazy because we just had a condo and there wasn't a lot of space between us. And like I said, I didn't really have a lot of tools. So I was buying stuff as I needed it. Then within a month or two, I was getting so much work that I ended up sitting down with my wife and I just said, hey, if I'm able to still put at least the same amount of money into our bank account every month, are you comfortable with me just not looking for a job working for someone else? This was a decision that we both have to make. And I, I actually give her a lot of credit for being on board because there was no guarantee of success. But she said, yeah, I think you should see where it goes. That summer, I was offered two projects where they were way too large to pull off in my garage. One project came through a former coworker and friend that had moved on to an esports company. And I was like, I don't even have a shop yet. And he's just like, well, get a shop. So fortunately, at that time, my wife was working as an administrative assistant 
at a commercial real estate brokerage and she convinced one of the brokers to help me find a space. I didn't have a business plan. I had maybe $8,000 saved up from doing stuff out of my garage, but I knew I was looking at about $20,000 worth of these orders if I could find a space to do it. Finally found one that was about 1,500 square feet, which felt like a palace compared to my garage and signed a three-year lease, personally guaranteed lease, uh, with only about a month and a half worth of guaranteed projects in front of me. And I admit, I wouldn't suggest that to anyone else. I, I think it's amazing that it did work out. But you know, after about a month of moving in, it was just me at first. And you know, my dad would come up and help out with stuff and other friends would help. But the lead fabricator at my old company dropped by and he had been let go too. So I hired him full time and we just kind of picked up where we left off. It's kind of crazy to think just how quickly things escalated. Just a, a year or two after working by myself in my garage, my company had grown to a four-man full-time team and we were building stuff for clients that you would think would be hiring much more seasoned companies for their projects, but here we are. And somehow I've also managed to create something that I love and pays the bills and still fits my personality of needing to learn and try new things all the time. I think it speaks volumes to your character. When you were working at that job, you were really putting yourself into it and that showed. And then when the worst possible thing that could have happened, you getting laid off happened, it turned out to be a great thing because people wanted to work with you. There's some people who are working at a job and they know in their heart that they're not going to stay at that job. They're working at that job either to get money while they're building their own company or to get experience while they're building their own company. And they might not be putting their heart and soul into that. And they might be half in it, but the furniture business and business in general, yes, it's about the business side and the building side, but at the heart of it, it's really about being somebody that somebody else wants to work with. And Absolutely. It's really a person to person business as much as we can talk about the business and the pricing and and yes, that's important, but it comes down to are you somebody that your employees want to work with, that your clients want to work with, that your vendors want to work with? And that's something that can't be forgotten. Being a genuinely good person at a job that you're working at. And I do want to talk about your company, but I just want to take that moment to touch on that and how important it is to always be, I don't want to say a good person, but a reliable person, as somebody who other people want to work with in whatever job you're in. Well, 100%. I think within, when you first you know reach out to somebody for a service, and that's really what this always is, it's a service. We can, we can call it a product company if we want, but anything custom is going to be a service-based type of thing. And your first experience with them is going to be a lasting experience. So we always, you know, want to make sure that our clients understand that we're not just taking on an order here. We're trying to fulfill their vision. Everyone's going to picture things differently and we want to try and get in their head. We want to, we want to be an extension of themselves where 
they are unable to do a certain part of it, but they have this vision or this concept or, or even just things that need to be executed and they need someone they can trust to pull it off. And what I've found is we don't have a lot of one-time clients here. Even stuff that was like a small thing that started off at first, we will hear back from people and it might be a bigger thing. And they, from that first small thing, they've found the trust in us to pull it off and to be you know easy to work with. And then that's where they want to come back. We're kind of an anti-corporate type company anyway. We're very casual. And that's an easier way to connect with another human when you don't feel like you have to spend an extra 15 minutes composing an email and using bigger words that you would normally use in a conversation to sound smart. It's uh, it's like where I'm not trying to impress you and it's very much like, a, okay, I'm going to pick up your pace, how you want to discuss things, how you want to speak and interact and just build that bond with somebody. Do you still sometimes throw in your fancy interior design and architecture words just to just to get a rise out of people? <laughs> <laughs> sometimes I, I'm not going to lie. I mean, there's, you, you never know the the amount of information that your client is aware of and you don't want to, you know, like mansplain things to people, but you also want to, I guess you could say, impress them with your knowledge base and your understanding of certain things just to make them comfortable with you that you're going to be the right fit for their their project. I know I was kind of joking there, but you brought up a good point where you don't know what your client knows. And that's a trap that a lot of people fall into projecting their own ideas onto a client without actually talking to the client. They're thinking this is going to be too much before they even ask what the budget is, before they even push it to the client. People are saying this isn't going to be the right material without ever pitching it to the client. And you pigeonhole yourself. When you're doing projects, you're doing a lot of different types of projects. I'm sure whatever I named, you could tick off and say, yeah, we've done that. So how are you working with clients in such a varied way when your last client was totally different than your new client? A lot of the times, the I mean, we don't necessarily come up with the concepts for things that we're going to make. We're usually presented with, you know, some sort of imagery or um, a hand sketch of something or even just a description of what they're looking for. So when we see things, we're kind of designing what they need. So having the opportunity to have worked with so many different materials, we know what works, what doesn't work. Uh, we know when to make suggestions rather than just follow what's being asked of us because we've been in situations where we're going to do this this way because they want it, but it's not, it doesn't work out that way. Or we thought we should do it this way and it didn't work out that way. And that's where our opportunity of of making suggestions come in. I mean, same same with if you're if you're building furniture and someone comes in and they have you know riff white oak dreams and plywood money, you have to give that reality to them of you know we don't do it this way because of this, and we're saying this based on our experience. We want you to understand this isn't us trying to tell you what's right we're telling you based off of what we've gone through in the past thinking about the idea of building furniture versus 
what you do. And yes, your company does build furniture at times, but you're doing a lot more event project pieces for a day, for a night, for a week, for one event, and not that heirloom quality that a lot of people who are building furniture and a lot of the clients who are accepting that furniture are looking for. On all of your projects, there's an interesting play of it needing to work, it needing to hold up, it needing to work for the time it's needed, but not putting too much effort into it, not putting too much craftsmanship in it that it's going to last for a hundred years. And with that amount of craftsmanship, it's going to overprice probably the budget that is needed for that project. How do you balance those two things? It looking good, it working, it not falling apart, and not overbuilding something. Well, that's that's really where the trick of what we do comes into these situations. There have been so many things that we've made where we know it's only going to be used for possibly even just an afternoon. It might be a couple of days, it might be a couple hours, and then it's either going to end up in a dumpster or it's going to be repurposed for something else. There's also things that we think is going to be used one time and then it's used for years and years to come when we never intended it to be used for that long. So having the understanding of what is the reality of how long something's going to last and be used from the very beginning is really important. And the other part that's been really important is kind of mastering making cheap materials look nice. We don't have the chance to work with hardwood at all for special events. Uh, we're using construction grade lumber and doing our best to stain it and make miter cuts for things and just make it look nicer than it is because that's really what calls for the budget. And it's, it's justifiably so. Like You don't need to spend that much money on something that's not going to last that long. But it's certainly become something that as as it happens over and over again, where we spend days, weeks building something and are so proud of it, but then it just ends up not existing for very long. Let's just call it that. It's kind of tough to get used to at first. We definitely like to try to convince people to let us repurpose materials because I just don't like adding to the uh, the dumps. But yeah, it's a challenge. And it, it really comes down to knowing what what kind of impact we can make with the cheapest materials possible instead of just going straight to the fancy materials and know what the outcome is going to be. I picture you and your team like people at NASA who are building satellites and rovers that are going to go up to space and then are going to be there for a certain amount of time. And then it just crashes into a planet and you have to think, I'm going to build it up into a point. But then after that, if it lives on, that's fine, but it just needs to survive to that point. Absolutely. And it's, it's sometimes it's a little bit heartbreaking because, you know, you, you, everything you create, you don't want to think that it's all for nothing in, in the long term, but some things are meant to be that way. And it's just a, an adjustment. You work with some pretty big names, some pretty big companies and have done some, some pretty big projects. How are you managing to keep everything on track on the office side? 
keeping track of emails and keeping a paper trail of everything, but also on the building side, making sure you hit that deadline because it's not like a furniture project for a client where if you're late, that's usually okay because they don't need it that exact time. These are deadlines that you need to make because the event's going to go on with or without you. Oh, man, that is that really is the key thing here. And I'm not saying that we have a perfect system, but we've got it down pretty well. And even listening to other episodes of your, of your show, and I'm hearing about people saying, oh, yeah, we're booked for so many months in advance and we have this many orders. I would love to think that I could just take on orders and get to them in either the order they came to me or however it makes sense to produce them. But in this in this world, you basically are told from the get-go, this is when I need this. Can you do it by then? And unfortunately, in the special events world, fabrication and custom elements are usually toward the end of the proposal process because they need to get all of the other elements organized before that and see what kind of budget is left. So we kind of end up toward the tail end and closer toward an event date where it would have been great to have the opposite. A lot of the times we'll get somebody saying, hey, I need this in two weeks, but we already have stuff on the calendar. That's really where it gets difficult. And there's a lot of other methods of scheduling things, you know, digitally, but we're old school. We have two big whiteboards on the wall that is just a calendar and we have it for some, you know, two to three months out and we can sit at it and stare at it because you think, oh yeah, you know, that date, it doesn't feel that far away, but seeing it physically, you can go, oh wow, that's only this far away. But also we kind of approach our timeline for projects with, we book things, we know it needs to be done by this date. Can we do it so much closer to that date or do we need an early start? The summertime is the worst because we'll have, summertime is really busy. We actually will book up a little bit early during the summer and then we'll get more orders during the summer. And you're having to turn away business going, we can't do all of this, but knowing two months later, it's just going to be dead. There's not going to be a ton of work. So it's frustrating because it turns stuff away, but it's also, it's not justifying expanding and getting any bigger because it's not a constant. There's a lot of up and down throughout the year. So if someone brings us a project and they give us a hard deadline, we'll tell them this is, you know, obviously we'll put a proposal together in a bid, but in our estimates, we'll tell them we need to have final approval. Any of these other elements like artwork or Pantone colors provided to us by this date and anything past that means either there's going to be a rush fee or we just can't do the project. Sometimes we get lucky and that actually does work out, but because certain things have to go through channels and who knows, I don't know how many people are involved in making the decision to pull the trigger. And I also don't know everyone's payment policies. So we'll say we need a check in our hands by this date, but they only cut checks on Fridays. And I don't want to say, well, that's not good enough because it's a two or three day difference for us and just strike the project. But at the same time, if I find myself in situations where it's like money's on the way, right? You promise? Okay, well, we're going to get started. We're going to go buy stuff. We're going to start cutting stuff. We're not making any changes from this point. But if that money doesn't show up, then 
we're going to have some problems. It's again, another, another one of those things that I don't really recommend doing to anybody unless you're put into that situation where it just has to be done because you're kind of extending this liability to yourself of either losing out on a project or just simply having more on your business credit card that's accruing interest that you need that payment to come in to, to balance that out. And here you are losing a percentage on it just because the month overlapped. You know, one, one of the difficulty things that we have is, is or that I have is I just don't want to say no to anything that I think we can actually do. So yeah, we're doing special events stuff, but you know, during COVID we got an offer to build a kitchen. So we built a kitchen, but then at the same time, I took it upon myself to really kind of get into the hardwood furniture aspect of fabrication because we have machinery here for it. And so there's, there's so many things, it, it makes it hard to to narrow down exactly what my company does anyway. So someone asked me to sum up what my company does in two sentences. I don't think I could do it. It makes picking Google AdWords a lot harder than, you know, if say you're a plumber, it's like if someone types in plumber, they know exactly what they're searching for. Someone's searching for my company. I don't even know how I get the business half the time. I It's just from word of mouth. It's a long elevator pitch that you have. You have to hope that there's a lot of floors in that building for you to yeah. be able to explain everything that you do. Yeah. That brings up a good point of how do you get your business? Is it all word of mouth? Is it just building on your reputation or are people coming in through advertising or through search results? How are you getting a majority of your clients? Well, just like I started off, you know, I had built sort of a network at the company I was at before. I technically was not allowed to reach out to them after I left the company. You know, there's a lot of uh, non-compete clauses that doesn't really hold up in California, but I honored it. Yeah, I left it up to people to, to contact me, but it really has been a network-based type of business for me. All the traditional ways of, of trying to get business, including AdWords, just don't seem to fit this type of um, business model. We did AdWords, and what I found is it kind of brought in a lot of the people just shopping. They would contact us. And when we give somebody a price, because we don't have you know formulas for everything, we literally do some design work to be able to give somebody a price. So we're already investing into it, but it turns out to be nothing. We never hear back, no, no response after putting in you know an hour worth of work for them. So I found that the network and just word of mouth, and that's not even the right term either, because it's it's once you're connected into people in the industry, they all talk to each other, or they might go from working at one company and then leaving that position to work at a different company. And so that web has kind of expanded a bit. So we had everybody that was at that first company, they may have made an introduction to the person taking over their role before they left. And so they were aware of us. And then when that person goes to this second company, maybe we're going to get the business out of that second company. And that's been a really key thing because this type of work is something that interests people enough to, for them to want to keep doing it for a longer period of time than just holding a job. They just do and then go home and don't think about but then find another job and you never think about your previous job again. They're parties. Who doesn't want to who doesn't want to be a part of throwing parties? Yeah. And I mean, like one of our one of our best clients is Harris Resort over uh, in they call it Funner, but it's Valley Center. It's it's about two hours from us. 
And they not only are responsible for bringing the party, but they're also promotions. They have to maintain the branding of Harrah's. They have to get people intrigued to get into the business, but also at the same time, they have to be responsible about the decisions they're making and how they're doing all that. So it's not all fun and games all the time. I wish it was. It sounds like it should be, but it's, it is a lot of hard work and it's just hard work you get to enjoy. Let's talk about pricing because when you're doing so many different things, you can't really have a lockdown pricing model because yes, everything has materials. Yes, everything has a timeline. Yes, everything has a certain amount of work that needs to go into it, but you're also doing much different things for much different clients. So I have to imagine your pricing changes when you're doing a accent wall for a local birthday party versus an accent wall for a large corporate client. What does your pricing look like and how are you going about ballparking pricing first and then locking down pricing after? When I first started out, I had my my core clients that were coming for me for stuff. But I also realized that because I was so new, I really needed to build a portfolio and build a portfolio of so many different things so that it was just you know evidence that it could be done through me and through my company. And so I did find myself pricing things a little bit less than what I think I should have just to have that much of a portfolio to show off. And at the same time, still building my network a little bit. It took a while to kind of hone in on how to do pricing because we knew, you know, like most others is you have your material cost, you figure out how much time it's going to take you to do it. And, you know, what sort of margin you want to put on top of that to pay some bills. I didn't know how to really put that together because we couldn't stack projects end to end with orders coming in. It would be, we had, you know, this one big project and then nothing for a week. And then maybe we get a small project. So it was never, it hasn't been easy to say, we're going to cover everything every month. So eventually we figured out what our monthly expenses are here. Like everything, payroll, lease, insurance, everything that comes along with that. And we averaged it out to come up with an hourly rate that we need to break even. So it doesn't really matter if it's you know a local birthday party or a big corporate client, we still need to make that money. So we just factor that into pretty much everything we do. Sometimes, sometimes we're able to ballpark things because it's close enough to something we've done before. And we can say, oh, it's probably going to be about this. Sometimes we really do need to design it out, find all the materials we would use, put together drawings and a cut list of the materials, try to optimize the cut list to get the most out of standard sheets of stuff. And that's the only way we can figure out what things are going to cost. So we're, once we figure out the material cost and, and how we're going to build it, we kind of settle down and say, okay, how long is this going to take us to do? And sometimes we just have a general idea of how long it's going to take us. And we just hope that everything works out. For the last couple of years, the prices of materials have been jumping around and you 
one week it's this, the next week it's twice as much. I remember uh, like we, we would build stuff that we would need to create and ship across the country and we would just get sheets of OSB for it. At one point in 2021, sheets of OSB out here, which were like $16, were going for $78. And I was just shocked by that. Eventually, we had to add to our estimates that this price is good for this many days. And not only because of material prices going up and down, but because when there is that hard deadline, if you come back to us past that and we haven't heard from you, maybe we've taken on other projects that filled that same slot. And we're going to have to work overtime or on the weekends to still fill your order if we can. It makes it, it's still very difficult to figure out exactly how to price things. It's just as long as we know we're not losing money on it, you know, we have the faith that we're going to keep paying our bills and continue doing what we're doing. Back when you were working at that other company and the boss left and was replaced by somebody else who, as you said, ran the company into the ground, it must have seemed like the worst time in your business life at that point. But I'm sure looking back on it, it was probably a great time for you because not only did it give you the opportunity to go out on your own, which I'm sure you're very happy about, but it also showed you what not to do as a boss, which sometimes is just as important as seeing what to do as a boss because sometimes you don't know if something's good or bad until you see something that is bad happening and that's how you know it's not the way to run your business what's some stuff that you do to be a good boss to people working for you on a day-to-day level, but also on a larger scope of the business? I don't have a company policy for it, but the one thing that I have in mind and I've made sure everyone here understands is everyone takes out the trash. And not just in a literal sense, which it is, everybody takes out their trash, but also in a, no one here is higher than anyone else. We're a team and we all have to function as a team. Every part of that team is valuable, no matter what you're doing. The other thing was, I don't want you to look at me as the boss. In fact, you know, I have to put CEO on a lot of forms, but I don't like thinking that I'm a CEO. The way I like to look at it is we're more like a football team and I'm the quarterback. Yeah, I'm going to be calling some shots, but at the end of the day and something goes bad, who's going to get interviewed and blamed for everything going bad? We have to function as a team and I don't want anybody to feel uncomfortable when I walk in to the shop from my office. Like I hated that feeling of, oh, here comes the boss. That's not a very comfortable place to work. And that's just that corporate mentality that I do not want to exist here. Like, obviously we have to be professional, but no one has to be worried about their job. And I want everyone to know that we're all adults here and adults have things that are part of their life that impact their um, their workday. Most of the guys here have kids and kids have things that, you know, like they have either meetings at the school or someone gets sick and you need to take care of that. I don't want them worrying like, oh, how much PTO do I have? Should I, you know, make my kid go to school when they're sick because I don't have any paid time off on there? It's like, no, just make sure everything's taken care of. And, you know, if, 
if you need to take care of that, then that's fine. That's that's part of life. If you need to go to the doctor, I'm not going to sit here and wonder how many times you've been to the doctor unless it becomes a problem. But just having that mutual respect for the people I work with is a really key factor in this. And I make sure that I go back into the shop and work on some of the most mundane things back there just so they know. I'm not making you do this because I don't want to do this. It just needs to get done. So that was an important thing that I learned from the guy that drove the other company in the ground is he had no idea how to be that guy. And everyone started to kind of resent him. And that's kind of why everything crumbled is because they didn't want to work for him. And I don't want anybody to sit here and say, you know what? I'm sick and tired of of Joey's attitude. So I just don't bring an attitude. This show is obviously a business show. And so it revolves around how you run your business. But in the furniture world, in the building world, there's that physical aspect of the company that is outside of how you're actually running the business. And that is your shop. That is where things are being made and produced. A shop like yours, we've already talked about how you're doing so many different things, so many custom projects, and it's hard to keep all that straight on the business side, but it must be even harder to keep that all cohesive on the building side when not only are you building a lot of different things, but sometimes you're building a lot of different things at the exact same time. How have you set your shop up to build all these different things and build them well without everybody going crazy or having to reinvent the shop for every single project? Yeah, that's definitely been a big challenge. As much as I would love to have everything stationed at a permanent place and have, you know, proper dust collection set up on all the machines and, you know, just have have everything laid out and it stays there. We can't do that. And I'm still in that 1500 square foot shop that I moved into originally. Real estate market in Southern California is really difficult to uh, try to expand, even when you are successful at it. So we have, you know, a couple big four by eight shop tables that are on casters. Um, My miter station is set up on casters as well, and it actually seats underneath a shelving unit, but we can pull it out and cut stuff and then push it back out of the way when we need more space. It's been a, a series of trial and error as far as where we keep stuff, because remnant is a big, big problem here. <laughs> we have so many different types of materials that we work with, and we don't necessarily have a place to keep remnant. Or we have enough left over where we say, we'll probably use that eventually. And it might be a year or two before we use whatever was left over. And so we have to kind of organize that in a way to not only not get in the way, but also remember we still have it and not just get buried. Most of the time, we're building really large things. So the we had to set up the saw right by the back door, the big roll-up door, so we can get that thing as close to the door if we have to cut material and go outside of the shop when we rip stuff. Do you have any automated machines? Do you have any CNC machines, anything along those lines, or is everything handmade? No, we don't have anything big and fancy like that. The biggest piece of equipment we have in the shop is the table saw. Um, everything that most people would consider a CNC type job, we literally cut with jigsaws. 
the the main thing that we've had to figure out is is just how to make the place as versatile as possible and we're we're moving things around all the time year after year because we decided we didn't like it this way we did it another way and we tried it out and we wait for the downtime to to experiment with that so we don't get caught in the middle of a big project the one thing that was great was when i started off working out of my garage i had to learn how to make the most out of a small space my wife hated it cuz there was sawdust everywhere on all of our stuff. Uh, but having that experience, I don't just assume that we're going to have the adequate amount of space to set things up. Sometimes we need to push all the tables out of the way in order just to assemble this one thing that we've made in pieces. You know, everything has to be made in pieces in order to transport it and set it up. But some projects, even with the versatility we have in our shop of moving things around, we never actually get to set them up in their entirety because they're so big. And then there's other projects like Legends, which is the in-house hospitality company at the LA Coliseum and and a lot of other sports venues too and, and music venues. They hired us to build a bunch of portable satellite bars for the Coliseum. And they put in an order and I wasn't expecting it of like 60 bars that were all either six or eight foot long. And so we had to build in waves and you know we'd make as many as we think we could fit and then tell them, hey, we got a delivery coming. Instead of doing what would normally be a better, in my opinion, a better process of doing one part of the project all at once, like, you know, cutting and then assembling and then finishing, we had to kind of do it incrementally. There was even one time where I was here late working on something and the power went out and I was in the middle of the shop and we were full. And if it hadn't been for the battery backup on the exit sign, by my back door, I don't think I would have found my way out. Before you started your own company, you had a very wide amount of interests and you probably thought that there would be no way for you to have a job that kept you on your toes in that way. But you found this line of work where you get to build new things every single day. And that's exciting for you. And that's what's kept you going and kept you interested in your profession, in your career. There are people who are trying to get into this. They want to start their own company or they have had a company for a while and want to be able to keep going in a successful way. What kind of advice would you share with people who are in a similar situation to you where they want to have a furniture company that they love going to every single day. And they also want that furniture company to be successful. The great one, Wayne Gretzky, has been quoted for saying, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. You could say, well, that's easy for somebody who's a professional athlete. But when you examine it, he's saying that from the standpoint of someone who's been trained to play hockey and found ways of becoming really good at what they are. So he was confident in his decision to take a shot. My personal take from that is you have an opportunity. You don't know if it's going to work out and you don't want to regret not taking the opportunity. But if you feel like you know it enough to justify taking that shot, it's worth trying. But just be careful about how far you jump into it at first. Because there's a lot of financial stuff that you may not understand 
when you first start off and it can get you into a lot of trouble. And that brings me to my second suggestion is anybody in any small business needs to develop a relationship with a CPA, someone to help you with your books. And for me, operating as an S-corp, there's a lot of stuff that I wouldn't realize I need to do. And I would be in a lot of financial trouble for it. You know, there's quarterly things that have to be filed and, you know, statement of information and all of these responsibilities that aren't just the day-to-day building of, of your projects and, and meeting with clients and, and quoting things. So having somebody with an expertise to keep you out of trouble is really important. The other, the other thing that I think that everyone should do when they first start off is uh, don't give out your cell phone number. That's uh, as, as much as you want to have that direct line to people who want to give you business, you have to create a division and not only from the customers, but also all of the garbage phone calls you get from spam calls. Get a virtual assistant like uh, like an e-voice or a, uh, one of the Google ones. It also filters out a lot of the stuff that would take away from your focus on your daily activities. If you have the opportunity to get in somewhere and learn from somebody else, take that opportunity before you just jump into it on your own. Even just for, like in my case, learning what not to do. You don't necessarily need to find somewhere to learn what to do, but what not to do. Don't be so set that what you're going to be doing is what you think it's going to be. And the outcome is going to be what it's going to be. Pay attention to Everything around you and all the circumstances you find yourself in that kind of lead you in one direction is like it might be right in front of you. You don't even realize that here's this great opportunity, but you're kind of pushing it away because you're like, that's not what I am intending to do. And for me, I thought I was going to have a portable bar company. I was pushed into a direction where we ended up doing everything else that wasn't, I mean, we still did that, but we ended up doing so much else with it. And had I said to myself, no, I don't want to stay with that. I don't want to, I don't want to take orders like that. I would have been missing out on everything that we've accomplished in the past seven years. I hope there's not too much backstory. I didn't want to make it like, this is your life and go into like, this is my autobiography. Well, that's what we're here for. We're here for your autobiography. We're here for your life story and how you took a business that didn't exist and turned it into something that is not only successful for you, but for all the clients you've had and all the people who work for you. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing the good parts and the bad parts of your story, because as we learn from this interview, you can learn from both. So I really do appreciate your time and you sitting down with me and sharing your story. And I wish you nothing but success moving forward in your business. I appreciate that. Same to you. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at thebuildwithethan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. 
The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Amerson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network, the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.